Mark chapter 2, verses 18 to 22. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. The people came and said to him, Jesus, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, and the new from the old, and, the, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But the new wine is for fresh wineskins. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, thank you for this word. Thank you for calling us together as brothers and sisters in Christ and those of us who may not yet know you personally. Thank you for drawing us together this morning. It's not an accident that we're here. You know the concerns and the burdens and the fears in our hearts. And so this morning, would we be freshly reminded of who you are, the God that we worship and serve, the one who scandalously called us by name and said, follow me. And for those of us who are in the process of being called, would you help us to have ears to hear and eyes to see? And would you, Lord, be glorified this morning, I pray in Jesus' wonderful name. Amen. There's a song that came out in August. It was by a guy who had the name Jamie Lawson. Anybody know what song it is? Uh, The song is called, I Wasn't Expecting That. It's not a song that I'd be advocating or encouraging you to go Google or uh, watch on YouTube, but the phrase, I wasn't expecting that, has taken the airwaves in Australia and in the UK and in the US. In fact, yes, last night I looked at some number 61 on iTunes, but at one stage earlier it was number one in August. Um, It's a love song, so most guys probably might not appreciate it, but it's a love song, and it's speaking about how he met this girl Um, they hold hands and then they kiss and he wasn't expecting that and and then they get married and he wasn't expecting that and then they have kids and he wasn't expecting that and and the kids grow up and he wasn't expecting that according to the lyrics and then his (laughs) and then the song ends very woefully and his wife dies and he wasn't expecting that he wasn't expecting that and to be honest when I watched the video and listened to the lyrics I wasn't expecting that But on a serious note, there are several times when things take place and we're probably not expecting that. You see, when I came to Australia in 1990, when I came a long time ago, (laughs) I wasn't expecting Australia to be so beautiful, but yet so behind the times. I remember watching the commercials and thinking, what's going on here? You guys are like black and white still. It It was crazy. I wasn't expecting that. I wasn't expecting Australians to put 
this black sort of cream on crackers and bread, and it smelled terrible. And yet they boast about Vegemite. I was just not expecting that. And I didn't expect Vegemite to smell, uh, to smell so terrible. I didn't expect for Julia Gillard to oust Kevin Rudd. I didn't expect that. I don't know if you expected that. I didn't expect for my wife and I to be sitting in a doctor's office and for her to just unknowingly pick up a magazine that had twins in it and her flick through and her elbowing me, look at this, isn't this cute, isn't this cute? And then for us to be taken into the doctor's office and that lady with that little thing that's looking at my wife's belly go, (gasps) and we're like, what, what, what? Like, do you know there's more than one in here? And we're like, no, I I wasn't expecting that. I was not expecting that. There was a time where um, we were in another doctor's office and we were told that our son has a chronic illness. I wasn't expecting that. One night at two o'clock in the morning, my phone rings with a grown man crying down the line, telling me that his 15-year-old daughter is dead. She's dead, Patrick. I wasn't expecting that phone call. There are things in our lives that we will encounter that we are not going to expect. And this morning, as we gather around these five verses, some people are going to hear a reply from a man, and I don't believe that they're expecting his reply. I think they must be scratching their heads going, wait, what? This doesn't make sense. It's contrary to what I've been taught. It's contrary to what I've been told. I'm not, they're not expecting it. Now, I don't have evidence of that anywhere in Scripture. Nowhere in Scripture do we know if these people who are asking Jesus this question, whether they actually do follow him or not. Look with me again at verse 18. Verse 18 says, Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, and people came and said to him. Now we can't get caught up actually in the identity of who's asking the question. Though it is great to investigate, we don't want to overlook what the actual um, point of the question is. We want to make sure that we're looking at the content of the question because that indeed is the point. So the question is, why? Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but yet your disciples aren't fasting? It's really a great great question. And I think what we need to keep in mind here as we look at this question is that at the beginning of chapter 2, verse 1, all the way to chapter 3, verse 6, which we're going to look at next week, There is some things that are happening. There's five events, and Dave's mentioned them. He's looked at the first two. I'm looking at this one, and Brendan's going to look at the next two. But there's five events that are taking place, all of them with questions about what is going on. Now, the first question takes place at Peter and Andrew's house. Peter and Andrew are having a gathering there. Jesus is there. He's teaching. The crowd's pressing in. And all of a sudden, in Peter and Andrew's place, the roof is starting to open. Dirt's starting to fall through. The scribes are sitting there listening to Jesus. There's a sick man, a paralytic, and he wants to be healed. He needs healing. And so his friends are digging a hole in Peter's and Andrew's roof so that they can lower them out to Jesus, and Jesus will heal them. 
But what Jesus says is what's confronting and what's challenging and what's making people scratch their head and go, what? Because Jesus is actually saying to this paralytic, your sins are forgiven. Now, are the Pharisees choking on the dust that's in the air or are they choking on Jesus's words? Because wait a minute, doesn't the Torah say that only God can forgive sins? What? And yet not a word the Pharisees spoke. And Jesus turns to them and he says, you've got this question. Why do you question these things in your hearts? Nothing has been vocalized. It's in their hearts. And King Jesus is helping them understand. Yeah, which is easier for me to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise up and take your bed. Oh, that's unheard of. This is crazy. First event. It brings a bit of confrontation. It makes people feel a bit uncomfortable. What is this teaching? Who is this man? Last week, we looked at Levi. Here he is. Levi is a tax collector. Tax collector. Tax collectors in those days were despised. Nobody liked them. Nobody wanted to be a friend. They were crooks. They were ripoffs. They were worried about themselves. They weren't worried about anybody else. And they didn't care if you had to sell your daughter or you had to sell your donkey. You needed to pay the taxes. And Jesus calls a tax collector? What? And out of this tax collector's gratitude, he hosts a party and he invites his friends. Who are his friends? Tax collectors, harlots, and sinners. And Jesus is in his house reclining with them. That's scandalous. And then the Pharisees and the scribes, they begin to vocalize, hey, what are you doing eating with tax collectors and sinners? Why would you do that? Why? Why would you do that? And now we come to a question about fasting. Who's asking the question? It's some followers, according to what this says. It's some followers. In Matthew's account, there's followers. In John's account, there's followers. It's followers. Some of the followers may have been John's disciples. It may have been John's disciples that asked the question. Are they trying to trick Jesus? Are they trying to call him out and say, look, you're a fake? According to the Greek and from my limited knowledge and what I understand, it doesn't sound as though this question is coming with a bunch of angst. They want Jesus to explain Why aren't you and your disciples fasting? They've got a question, and they go to Jesus, and they ask the question. And here's the reason why that they're asking the question. Because you see, in the Mosaic law, there was a fast. The people of Israel, the people of God, in Judaism, you fasted one day a year. And that day was the Day of Atonement. You fasted on that day. Now, in Jesus's day, they're fasting a whole lot more than that. How did all of that happen? Well, do you remember when Babylonians took over? They took the children of Israel away. There was a whole lot of fasting going on there. You see, fasting was called by spiritual leaders, by the Pharisees and the scribes. If people were in crisis, if people were in need, they were encouraged to fast. But what has happened is the Pharisees and the scribes, they've put in a whole bunch of extra fasts. 
So they're fasting. When Jesus is there, they're actually fasting twice a week. They're fasting on the second day and on the fifth day. That's on the Monday and on the Thursday. They're fasting. But that is in addition to what is in the Torah. You see, the Pharisees, they are very, very influential people. They would be gone to 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 have the Torah explained to them or to understand what it is that they're supposed to do. They wanted to understand what the Torah requires. And what's happening is the Pharisees are adding in extra traditions. So they're actually adding in traditions and they're valuing traditions and they're actually undervaluing the intent of the law that was given in the Torah. So they are valuing a tradition of fasting rather than the intent of what fasting is supposed to do. You see, Jesus has come and he's ushering in his kingdom. The Pharisees are added, have added on to uh, added extra religious practices that are focusing really on behaviors and, and, and not at all what was the intent but if you look back over on, at Mark chapter 7, Jesus is actually going to go toe-to-toe with these Pharisees and say to them, Look, you leave the commandments of God and you hold to the tradition of men. You see, Isaiah the prophet, he prophesied, These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts, they're far from me. In vain they worship me teaching as doctrines and commandments of men. So you can understand why John's disciples and these disciples and followers of the, of, of the Pharisees are saying, wait, why don't your disciples fast? You see, the law was intended to lead people to God. That is what the purpose of the law is. It was to define sin. It was to reveal to the person that they are a lawbreaker, that they are sinners. That was the purpose of the law. And if you want to read through Romans 7, if you want to read through the book of Galatians, you will understand that the law had a purpose. The law was never intended to bring salvation. So by you holding to the laws, that was not going to save you. But the Pharisees seemed to communicate that by just following the laws, then you'll be a good and upstanding person and you'll be right. The Pharisees are burdening people and they're blurring the intent of the law. Spurgeon says the law is the perfect storm which wrecks one's hope of self-salvation, but drives them to the rock of all ages. Isn't that good? The law is the perfect storm which wrecks one's hope of self-salvation, but drives them to the rock of all ages. You see, in Judaism, there's three pillars. Three pillars for Judo- for, for in Judaism. The first one is prayer. You must pray. Pray, pray, pray. The second pillar is almsgiving. So you're supposed to make sure that you give to the poor. And the third one is this fasting. And this fasting 
has become a tool and a device that people are thinking, if you don't fast, then you're not really religiously committed. If you don't fast, then you're not forgiven of your sins. So it's works-based. You're fasting to get your own atonement. You're fasting to make yourself right before God. That is not the intent of the law. So can you see what's happening? In this verse, Jesus and his followers are not adhering to the oral traditions that have been put in place by the Pharisees and the Sadducees. He's not going to do that. But he's going to fulfill every letter of the law that was written in the Torah. I want you to picture the scene that's described here. Is the question being presented because Jesus has just been seen feasting at Levi's house? Can you imagine? I mean, like, you picture this scene, but then you picture modern-day 2015 Christians. I mean, I've done this. Can you see what he's doing? He calls himself a Christian. He's eating with tax collectors and, and harlots. People are scratching their heads about what Jesus is doing. And they're talking amongst themselves. But do you know what I've done? I've done my prayer this morning. And I put my denarius in the box at the wall. And I've done my fasting. Oh, thank God that I'm not like those men. It's creating this worth of, look what I've done. Look what I bring. This text is not about fasting. This text is not about even how to fast. This text is all about, in fact, this letter is all about showing who Jesus is, who he was. Look with me at verse 19. And Jesus said to them, he's answering again with his unimaginable response. Here it is. And Jesus said to them, can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? Wait, what? We just asked you a question, Jesus, about fasting, and now you're answering us with a question about a wedding. Church, this is where it gets so exciting. God's word is so incredibly rich. It is so life-giving. Do you see, in that time and in that day, a wedding is not like we do today. You know, a wedding would last for seven days if you were a virgin. If you were a widow, the wedding would last for three days. It was a massive celebration. The party would just go on and on and on. Seven days. And do you know what? If you were invited to a wedding, if you were actually got an invitation to the wedding, do you know your only expectation would be is to come and enjoy? That's all it would be. You just needed to show up. Your food was provided. Your entertainment was provided. You had no, no want for anything. Maybe rest. But you had no want for anything you'd only be asked to participate. You'd only be asked maybe to stand up at the karaoke mic and belt out a song. But your drink was there. 
And the parties were so big and so good that they would actually roll out into the streets. I mean, I want you to picture this. So Brendan is going to marry Charlotte. And Brendan's going to go and he's going to invite the, the, the attendants that he wants to come to the wedding. And the blokes are going to go with him and he's going to go over to Charlotte's house. Oh, guys, this is so rich. He's going to go over to Charlotte's house. He's going to pick up Charlotte. There's going to be clapping and there's going to be cheering and he's going to take her to his house, which is going to be her house. Guys, get this. He has met every provision for Charlotte. He would have made every provision for all the guests. There would be much celebration. The bridegroom has figured out all the needs, all of her desires. He would have gone ahead and brought her to his house, which is now her house. It's incredible imagery. Now let me ask you, what doesn't go with that imagery? What's the last thing you would think of at a, at a wedding that somebody would be doing? Fasting. That's ludicrous. Why would you fast at a wedding? It's a joyous time. There's incredible celebration to be had. Why in the world would you want to be fasting? It is a huge affair. It is a massive opportunity of celebration. But I want to show you the answer to Jesus' question. He answers his own question, and he answers their questions, and it's in just three words in verse 19. Have a look. I want you to see it yourselves. And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? Here he answers the question in just three words. As long as. As long as is revealing the condition as to why his disciples aren't fasting. But not only that, he's also explaining that this festivity, this wedding celebration, it's not going to continue. It's not going to last. And here's what gets me. As long as they have the bridegroom with them, three words, they cannot fast. Cannot fast with this bridegroom. The only appropriate response for these disciples is great joy and great celebration because remember, what does fasting represent? It represents a time of need. A time of sorrow, anguish. Fasting is a time where you, you're crying out because you're in want. Oh, there's going to be a time that these disciples, the, these men, these followers will be fasting again and they will return to mourning. But it just staggers me that even if Jesus' disciples, as I pondered that and thought of that, even if Jesus' disciples wanted to fast, they couldn't. They couldn't fast. They were in no need. These men are joyful. The bridegroom, the Son of God, is there present with them. This must have been so provocative for these hearers. And you know when you think, even though I said 
it's not about the, um, the hearers. One of the things that got me thinking, and I was reading, and I discovered this, but uh, I'm standing on somebody else's shoulders, but think with me for a moment. You know, we have the four Gospels, we have four different accounts, but in John's Gospel, there's a time where Jesus is, he's just baptized Jesus, and Jesus has moved on, and John is still with his disciples. And it's over in John chapter 3, if you want to have a look. In fact, I encourage you, John chapter 3, and I want you to see verse 27. But just explaining up to verse 27, there's a discussion that is taking place. And um, John responds to his followers and his disciples with this. In verse 27, John says, A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given to him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I'm not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. Listen to this, listen to this. This one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend, i.e. John, of the bridegroom, i.e. Jesus, who stands and hears him, rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, John's saying, my joy is now complete. Therefore, he must increase and I must decrease. I wonder you know, in, 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 it's described that John's disciples are, are, are there or followers of John, and it's John's people who are asking the question. I wonder if Jesus is serving these guys by saying to them, do you remember a conversation inadvertently of what John said to you about the bridegroom? He's wanting to expose who he is. Can you imagine if these guys would have got it? I mean, Jesus is this imagery of being the bridegroom, it's a veiled reference of himself. He's exposing to them that I'm the bridegroom. A veiled reference explaining why these disciples, my disciples, my followers, aren't holding to this pious tradition of fasting. They can't fast. I'm here. there'll be a time when they fast again. Can you imagine, though? Imagine if they responded, because they wouldn't be fasting either. (laughs) They would be joining in the feast. They would be joining in the celebrations. It's not about fasting. It's much like what took place at Peter and Andrew's house. Jesus is revealing, I, I God. And get this, in that revelation, what he's actually revealing is that the mission and the role of God are now present in Jesus. It's staggering. But I want you to cast your eyes to verse 20. He goes on to say, the day will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them and they will fast in that day. It's important that we understand that Jesus isn't dismissing the practice of fasting of the pharaohs, or he's not rebuking John's disciples for uh, followers for not fasting. He's basically saying, there's going to come a time, the days are going to come when the bridegroom is taken away, and then they're going to fast in that day. But you know, back in Mark and Matthew's account of telling of this, you know, Uh, Some stuff happens between 
And Jesus actually taught the Sermon on the Mount. And in the Sermon on the Mount, he's actually instructing on how you're going to fast. If you're going to fast, Jesus is, these are Jesus' words, Jesus' instructions. If you're going to fast, hey, you don't go about going, <coughs> announcement, everyone, I'm fasting for... You're not making it about you. It's a private event. You're not putting ashes on your head and walking around all somber. That's not what it's about. Fasting, there's an intent There's a reason to fast. I don't know if you fast. I don't know if that's your practice. But you know, fasting is an important practice. There's nowhere in Scripture that tells us how many times we have to fast, how often we ought to fast. But fasting is a great spiritual discipline. You could probably tell I don't do it much. But fasting is something that I want to grow in. But fasting, there's, there's, there's some benefits from it. You grow in humility on your dependence upon God, recognizing that He is the Creator and I am the created. He designed this body. He knows this body's needs and your bodies. There's great spiritual effects that happen from fasting. Instead of eating, you're going to spend your time praying. And look, you can just give up one meal or two meals, or you can go the day. You can, some people are radical, and they do 40 days or 10 days. I mean, there's all sorts of ways that you, do, you can do that. But here's the thing. You don't fast as, in a way to boast. You don't fast so that you can brag about what you've done. But fasting is when the, the bridegroom is in heaven. He's going to return to get us, and some of us do have needs. And so fasting might be a way in which we um, uh, love the Lord our God with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our strength. That might be a, a practice. And I would encourage you to consider the practice of fasting. But fasting is something that is between you and God. And Jesus even said to the disciples, it's between you and your heavenly Father, and your heavenly Father will reward you. So here we have this fasting, and after, you know, Jesus moves on now from the answering the question about the fasting with this wedding imagery, and now he's going to tell two parables in verses 21 and 22, and he says, no one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made, and no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins, but new wine is for fresh wineskins. I mean, these parables would have been quite common images um, of their day. So first, you've got this new cloth, that's going to be sold onto, sewed onto an old garment. And then you've got this new wine that's going to be poured into an old wineskin. Now, he explains that when you take this new patch and you sew it onto a new, a, an old garment, it might w- look like it's going to work. But you wash that bad boy and that patch is going to pull away. It's going to tear. And then it's going to tear the old garment and both are ruined. And then he's talking about the, the, the new wine into the old wineskins. You know, in the Orient, in the first century, what they used to do is how they used to make these um, skins uh, or, or, or these containers was they would skin a goat. And so they would try to take the whole skin of the goat off, keeping it all together, and then they would tar it, uh, tan it, tar it, and then they would, um, that would be the containers. That's how the containers were made. But see, what would happen is, is once those containers were used, particularly with wine, 
um, it worked with new wine and a new wine skin because there was a fermenting period that took place from the new wine in the new wine skin and those skins are have elasticity in it so they're able to expand but once the wine skin has aged a bit it gets a bit hard and a bit brittle and so you pour new wine out of a wine vat into an old wine skin it's going to burst it can't handle it so that is there's these two stories, or two parables, these two images. But what is Jesus revealing here about a new patch, a new wine? Here's what Jesus is revealing. He's the new patch. He's the new wine. And he won't be integrated into pre-existing systems. He's not going to go into a system that's already created. Why? Why wouldn't he do that? Because he has a plan. And his plan is far better. His ways are much higher. His thoughts are much higher. He's got a plan. Because what happens is you can't just put a patch of gospel on and it work. You can't put a new gospel into an old thing it's going to burst and everything's going to be ruined you see the gospel of jesus christ is a whole new garment it is a whole new way it won't fit with the old system it is a whole new way C.J. Mahaney preached a wonderful sermon on this, and he's, he's, he entitled his message, Things Are A-Changing. Things are a-changing. This new gospel, this new patch, this new wine, it won't, it, it's going to be done away with the old way. A new covenant is being ushered in. I'm going to do for you what you cannot do. And so even your attempts, it's not going to work. It is a new garment. You see, the day is going to come in verse 20. A day is going to come where the bridegroom is taken away. And this is so significant in verse 20. So here in 21 and 22, we have these incredible images, uh, parables, But here in verse 20, the day will come, I want you to cast your eyes back to that, when the bridegroom is taken away, taken away. In the Greek, this uh, this idea is that he's going to be violently taken. He's going to be forcibly withdrawn, violently removed. And it's a fulfillment of what is prophesied in Isaiah 53, where it says it will be by oppression and judgment that he's taken away. He's going to be stricken for the transgressions of his people. Friends, you and I and the readers of Mark's gospel live on this side of the cross. And we can understand this. Mark is writing to those who are on this side of the cross. He's writing to Gentiles, non-Jews, showing them He fulfilled this. Look, this is what he did. He did this. Look, this is who he is. He's pulling back the curtains to show us the bridegroom is Jesus. 
You see, we live, you and I, we live in a fallen world. We live in a fallen world of sin. There is suffering and there is death. Imagine our, 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 those first century Christians. They would have witnessed and seen things. They would have seen suffering and death. People on the other side of the cross, they were living in anticipation of a king. They'd been prophesied that there was going to be a king that was coming. The cross and resurrection happened. The king has come and he has arisen. Look and see. It has been done. During Jesus' time on earth, Mark goes on to explain and help readers understand, and I would want to do the same for you, and this is our calling to do to others, is to show that Jesus has healed the hurting. Is that not your story? Has that not been what's taken place in your life? Has he not healed your hurts? Have you been demon-possessed and been set free? He, Jesus, in first century, he's healing and demon-possessed people. I've heard of people who have been demon-possessed. This king is powerful and he has all authority. He's healing the sick. He's healing the lame. He's causing people to rise again. He gives sight to the blind. He calls the lame to walk. But besides all of that, here in verse 20, something is going to happen to this King Jesus that no one else in all of history has done or will ever do. You see, my friends, he is going to be taken. He's going to be seized and he's going to be unjustly tied, tried, excuse me, and he's going to be beaten and he's going to be spat upon, and he's going to be yelled and screamed at. He's going to be punched and ridiculed, and he's eventually going to be crucified and die. His heart is going to go flatline. He's going to be buried. But he doesn't stay buried, my friend. He rises from the dead, defeating sin, the devil, and death. That is unimaginable. Absolutely, scandalously unimaginable. But the teaching, friends, of these two parables is that a new life of redemption in this king, it cannot be confined to these old legalistic forms of Judaism. They're not confined in these systems or in these traditions. And that is why I think these people are scratching their heads going, wait, you're doing something different, Jesus. That's not what the Torah explains. Or that's not what I've been told in, from the, the, the Pharisees. What? And our Savior left heaven, came to earth to confront these men and to set it right. And he's ushering in a new kingdom. And its implications is that it requires a response. It requires us to consider and to wrestle and to respond to this, what, this account. The original hears, I wonder what would have happened when they went away from this um, answer. We don't get a lot of details and I would love to have a little bit more information. What did those guys do? Did they go, oh, get it. 
What did they do? We know that some of them, though, yelled, Crucify him! He's upsetting the systems. I want to ask you a question. If you have yet to accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior, what questions do you have? Do you know, as I've been praying about this and coming to preach this morning, one of the things that has been in my heart to say to you is that questions are okay. Questions are good. People went and asked Jesus questions. It's not the questions that are the problem, though. It's the heart behind the question. Do you really want to know who he is? He'll reveal himself to you. Read his word. Talk to your friends. Ask them to give an account of the hope that lies within them. Don't be afraid of your questions about who he is because he will give you an unimaginable response. Do you want to know why you needed Jesus to die for you? Do you want to know why you need to be forgiven? It's a great question. Can you answer those, Christians, of your friends? Do you understand why? If you don't, come and talk to me and Brendan or Dave. Make an appointment. Come and see us. Because people are looking for hope. and They want to know and they want to understand. But listen to their heart behind the question. And if you look at the heart behind these questions... Maybe these guys are trying to call Jesus out. Maybe they're angry. Don't be afraid of asking the questions about who God is. Because you know what? I tell you this. He's not nervous. God ain't nervous about your questions. But he will humbly help you and lovingly and show you his truths. But how do you then respond? My final question this morning is for those who have called themselves believers in Jesus. My question is this for you. How are you doing with the bridegroom? He's called you by name. And as I pondered this vision of the bridegroom going to the bride's house... (laughs) Collecting the bride, met all of her provisions, takes her to her new house. Is not the only response just to go, what? This is crazy. This is so exciting. Me, once an enemy of Jesus, I'm, I'm not just a bride's attendant, a bridegroom's attendant, You and I, guys, who have accepted Christ as Lord, we're the bride. We are the bride. Does that affect you? You you and I, we are the bride. Our Savior has gone ahead of us and met every need that we're going to have. Whoa! What is our response? Is our response joy? What is your response to what the bridegroom has done?
Now I know some of us are walking through terrible times and the Savior is in heaven and he's not here with us. And some of us are in great pain and confusion and mourning. But I would ask you to do this, brother or sister in Christ, who's called Jesus as your Lord and Savior. Look and rehearse what the bridegroom has done. Look at what the bridegroom has done. Because the only proper response to that is thanksgiving and joy. Let me pray for us.